Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely, I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who, can, who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will, fill, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And the next passage is from Acts chapter 13, verses 32 to 39. We tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that you will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose, in his own generation he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This is the word of the Lord, written for his people. Amen. Thanks, Femi. So on the day when most churches want their senior pastor to be as respectable as possible, um, it's spring and fall colors. Um, so here's what happened. Two weeks ago, I did a funeral for a woman named Beth, and I didn't get to meet her before um, she died, but her family goes here. And um, they, uh, she's apparently a great lady, a believer, lots of great stuff about her, but one of the things was that she just loved Wisconsin sports. She's a huge Badger and Packer fan, and they wanted to kind of theme the funeral that way interestingly enough. And so, um, so I had Nicole, she came up for the first song, everybody's sitting there, and she says, I want to play for you a song that meant so much to Beth. On Wisconsin, on Wisconsin. And I was the only one who didn't know the words. Um, and so I had ordered this suit days in advance, paid like $35 extra for shipping, so I'd have it two days before the funeral, and it did not come in time. And so, yeah, and so I, I said, listen, I ordered this fantastic green and gold suit to honor Beth and, and a minister to you guys, and it is not, sadly not here. And so I am not preaching next week at my church, but I will wear it at church the next week. And at that moment, I had not realized that two weeks from then was Easter. So, but I think it's important because God keeps his word that we keep ours. So, um, 
the, the first um, funeral that I am actually, was actually conscious of was my grandfather died on my dad's side when I was in seventh grade. And um, life was already insecure enough for me. I was like a late bloomer. Girls didn't like me. I was doing poorly in school. My parents were profoundly disappointed in that. And it's just the whole thing wasn't, life wasn't going perfectly well. And then my grandfather died. And meanwhile, if, if you know, so I'm almost 40, if you know anything about my generation, in case all of the other problems of growing up weren't bad enough, the, your whole childhood was under the fact that the Russian bear at any moment with all of its nuclear weapons might blow us all up at any moment, right? It, which was really fun if you were a Gen Xer, right? And then like, about that time, like, the Berlin Wall fell, and the Soviet bloc fell apart, and it seemed like there was going to be this new, free, prosperous world in which things were going to make sense, and humanity was finally going to have a great time, and that lasted for maybe about 10 years, if it even lasted that long for most people, and then it was right back to craziness, right? In fact, Soren Kierkegaard, who I always think of whenever anybody talks about going to the restaurant, the Great Dane, because he is called the Dane in philosophy. He said, um, he said, all people, if they're conscious at all of their being, have three great anxieties that they realize. They realize they have a guilty past. They're anxious about having a boring present, that their life wouldn't be fulfilling. And they're anxious about an uncertain future. And everybody who is conscious of their being knows those things are present. One of the things that is so remarkable about the book of Psalms is that in all of the books of the Bible, virtually all of them are in the voice of God to humans, right? God is speaking from his voice to human beings. He's giving law. He's making promises. He's explaining how we're doing it wrong in the prophets, right? He's explaining the meaning of his Christ. He is God come in the flesh in Jesus, teaching us what that means, showing us what that means. There are only a couple of books in the, but the largest and longest book in the whole Bible, the voice is reversed. God inspired the largest and longest book of the Bible to be a divinely inspired expression of human experience faithfully back to God, which even includes accusations against him. So long as the emotions are experience is worked through faithfully, and as you read Psalms, even the ones with accusations, they resolve faithfully. And so the book of Psalms has been read throughout all modern ages it's being, it will be read today by millions of people so that they can learn how to feel better. And the way God wants you and I to feel better isn't by saying, do whatever you want. That's not God's theory of happiness. Because what, that, what will happen is if you try to feel better by doing whatever you want, you're going to create misery for everybody else and ultimately for yourself. Because we're all basically horrible and god-awful at creating happiness. But if we will learn from God through this huge book that he's given us in his word about how to feel better, how to do that, how to be better at feeling, it will lead to us feeling better. Because listen, if you can't be happy in this uncertain, insecure world, you're going to be unhappy. It's very unlikely it's going to be getting better. The history of humanity is chaos. 
well, the, the life we're living now, this, this right now, this sort of chaotic, hating everybody, things happening, racial tensions, economic whatever, all jobs getting mechanized, heroin epidemics, all this, this is good times. This is incredible good times among the human race. You can't, if we can't learn how to feel better, if we can't be happy in this, we're just going to be unhappy. Okay? Now, Psalm 16 is one of the best biblical examples of the big picture of just how that works. How, how does God function? How are we supposed to interact with him with all the different kinds of feelings, with all the different kinds of experiences that we encounter in our lives in such a way as so that we can be blessed, so that we can be happy, so that we can— and I don't mean that just to be like, oh, so you can be like shallowly, blithely happy. I mean so that we can be deeply satisfied as people in a world with all kinds of insecurity in it so, because— all of the good that is going to happen in the world is going to come from the humans who can be secure in, in, in insecurity, who can build something in the midst of chaos, who can create things like families and churches and businesses and places where there are outposts of security and peace because they're created by people who have hope in the middle of all the chaos. They, they believe it is still worthwhile to have a child. They believe it's still worthwhile to try to stay married to somebody of the opposite sex, even though they're crazy different from you. That it's worthwhile to try to create a business and provide for the needs of others and produce and rather than take in a world where people seem to just want to take. That kind of hope is necessary, not just for us to be happy, but for us to help others find blessing. Um, you could look at it like this in the voice of the psalmist, who in this case is David. The basic message emotionally in the psalm, the way he's learning how to feel, is he says in the psalm, he says, listen, even my joy rejoices when I recognize your security, the way you preserve me. And one of the ways that... Um, we could look at that is PFFP. So that's hopefully memorizable. PFFP. This is how the dynamic with God goes. God makes a promise. That's always the first step. Human beings never initiate anything good. God starts first by telling us something that's true. And then every human being has a choice whether or not to believe or trust God in what he says, right? Like when you tell somebody something, you want them to believe you, and if they don't believe you, they're calling you a liar implicitly, right? It's a little infuriating, right? So God tells us a promise. He speaks and shows something about himself or what he's going to do, and then we have a decision whether or not we're going to trust and believe him. That's the second F. That's faith. So God makes a promise. Then is the question of faith, whether or not we'll trust him. And then we have to do something with the thing that we have allegedly believed. We have to begin to act as though it's true, because we said we think it's true, which is faithfulness, which is sort of the proof that the first F is true, that we really have faith. If we have faith, we will then step out, walk out, we'll do something as though it's true. And when we do that, and if we, you read the Bible carefully, only when we do that, does God then providentially begin to work in ways that we begin to experience his provision, his preservation of us, and we actually see him at work, which then builds our faith, and we're ready to believe the next promise. And we encounter God's next promise. 
And we're called to believe it, to act like we believe it, and then see his provision. And when that happens, when that cycle is happening, what it produces in us is joy. It's like an electricity generator. It's, there's things that are spinning, but when the things are spinning, it always produces something. And it produces something other than something spinning. Right? In that case, electricity. In this case, when this is spinning, it produces blessedness, happiness, joy. Always. And this is the means by which God has called us to seek blessedness, happiness in him. And not just general like, I think I'm doing okay today. The idiom that David uses, in the NIV, it's been translated for the last two translations. My heart rejoices— and my, or my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. There's no word for tongue in the original language. Well, I mean, there is a tongue, word for tongue in Hebrew. In that verse, though, there's no word for tongue there. It's kind of weird. What it actually says is, my glory celebrates. My heart is glad, and my glory celebrates. Now, poetically, they just put tongue in there, and it kind of works for Hebrew parallelism. But that's really not what David says. What David says is, he is so experienced— that God's promise is true by believing in it and acting like it and seeing God's provision in real life. And that has so affected him that he is so happy and pleased in God that not only is he happy, but his happiness is happy. See, we aim way too low. Now, there's four examples of this in, um, in Psalm 16. Oh yeah, there it is. Okay, good. Then that. Sorry, I was out of order. Okay. The first example is in relationship to God's truth and how it affects our character, our morality, our, our, our life in society, and our politics. That seems like a weird, kind of a strange one to be like the first thing, but that's what David says. Now, because remember, David ultimately becomes king. We don't know in Psalm 16 if he was king by the time he wrote this or not, but his, his life is in the middle of everyone. You want to talk about people who struggle with anxiety, stress, frustration, anxious futures? It's, it's like people who are between a lot of people, who have to deal with what a lot of different people are going to do. Because everybody's doing something different. David had good friends he could rely on. He had people that were stabbed in the back. He had people who were hunting him down for death. His own wife became his enemy. Some other guy's wife betrayed her husband, who was being an idiot, basically, and did something on David's behalf. I mean, like, all kinds of crazy stuff happened in his life. And David basically couldn't be everything to everybody as wicked as they are or as good— He recognized his own political capacity. His moral flexibility wasn't going to save him. But he had, he had heard Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 says that God had enthroned his king over all people, and he laughs at the nations when they scorn him, and that he will uphold the rule of his son. And it goes all the way through, and the very last line of Psalm 2 is, blessed or happy are all who take refuge in him. See the promise there? God will install his king, and his king will be king. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so David, just a few pages later, Psalm 16 says, Preserve me, God, because I take refuge in you. And then he orders all of his moral life, all of his character, all of his social life, all of his politics, by verse 2. I said to Yahweh, the God who is really there, You are my Lord, that is master and king. You are my Lord, 
without you I have no good thing. That is a specific declaration of faith. I'm going to believe you. I don't believe anything else more than I believe you. And so what that meant was, even as this person who was in the political ascendancy, he says, I look at the whole land of Israel, and do you know what I see? I see people in all strata of society— I see people who are slaves, and people who are nobles, and people who are business people. I I see—I don't see their status. I see their quality. I see whether or not they trust you, Yahweh. Whether or not they act like you are Lord and King. And those people who actually believe you like you, and behave like they believe that, they are the glorious ones in the land. And all my delight in human beings is in them. Not the upwardly mobile people, not the people in power, not the people who can deliver me on my next contract or can help me win that battle, or all the things that normally in politics and society and and all of that people care about. No, 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 he's like, those who believe you, those in them are all my delight. And he said, and there are others who will trade you for another. It actually, the text doesn't say another God. It just says they trade you for another. That is, they trade God as king and their one good thing for anything else. And he said what that produces in them is that instead of coming to you and making a sacrifice for their sins and pouring out the blood of their own guilt before you in repentance, they gut the poor and they backstab people who they should have treated impartially and they throw their own friends under the bus so that they can advance and they pour out their blood in worship of their God of advancement and success and political concatenation. And I will not make those sacrifices. I will not walk with them in that. And their names will not be on my lips. I will not praise them. I won't say I'm with them, right? But then we can see the result of that, which is that God has given him a portion. God has sustained him. He's alive to write this psalm. And for a guy who was in a lot of battles, that was no small thing. You see, God had made a promise. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. He had believed that promise. And then he had acted at great risk to himself like he believed it because he believed that God preserves those who take refuge in him. People who believe that God preserves those who take refuge in him can take risks for the right reasons. And David took all kinds of risks for the right reasons. And God preserved him. And that cycle of faith, promise, faith, faithfulness, God's protection of him and his providing for him built his faith but created joy. It took all of the trials, all the struggles, all the betrayals and used all of it to produce happiness. David was learning how to feel better. The second is um, that he trusted God promise for what he was going to have in this life. Right? What are you going to have in this life? What kind of car are you going to drive? What kind of place are you going to live in? Are you going to have any children? Are you not going to have any children? Are your children going to be idiots? Um, are you going to be wealthy at, at some point? Like, what, what are you going to have? Are you going to be healthy? Are you going to have a long life? Are you going to die early? What are you going to really have? What's going to be your portion? Right? And so David believed two promises about this. One is obvious. He said, you hold fast my lot or my portion. That is, um, you're the one who secures whatever I'm going to have or not have. 
And that's really up to you. But he says something else. He says, the Lord is my portion and my cup. Now think about this. If I told you, okay, you're going to have an inheritance, and your inheritance is going to be made up of two things. The first thing is a hundred million dollars, and the second thing is something else unnamed that is not debt. Okay? Now you don't know what the second thing is. Are you happy with this inheritance? Right? Like it, it could just be F-150, you know? It's like seven years old. Which if you're a bow hunter, that's, a great, that's great. But if you're anybody else, you're like, what's going on? You see, what, what David is saying is he's saying this. If God is my portion, if he is my inheritance, God plus anything is a great inheritance. So it doesn't really matter if I'm hiding in a cave, which David did, or if I'm king with 13 wives, which David did. It, and anything in between, he believed that, that God was his portion and his cup. God plus anything is good, whether it's nothing or everything. And because of that, he could look at what he did have, because we don't really know when he wrote Psalm 16. We don't, we don't know where he was. He could have been in the middle of living in, in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. He could have been king. But wherever he was, he was able to say, your lines, my space, which you've laid out for me, has fallen delightfully. That Hebrew word can also be translated melodically. And he said, therefore my inheritance, my heritage is beautiful to me. It may have been that he had three buddies to sit in the cave with him. And that's a beautiful inheritance when you're sitting in a cave. Or it may have been that he had children and money and prestige and power to use for good ends. The third is that God's revelation provides counsel and wisdom. I, I know for some people that's not a big question, but one of the largest questions that we should feel a lot of feelings about and experience every moment is, how should life be lived? Like, what, what am I here for? What are we doing? What's the right way to navigate this, right? And what David says is, is that God's promises in this is that God has given wisdom and instruction to humanity in his written word and how he has spoken and shown himself. And if we would actually believe that and act like we believe it, that is, read, study, learn, take it in, it will produce a providence in which we'll know how to navigate things in ways we wouldn't have otherwise. Our wisdom will be far beyond what it would have been. And, it, and this one actually is one of the easiest to see in real life. It's one of the easiest to see in real life. To actually study God's word, see what God has spoken and shown about himself, begin to apply it in real life, and watch what happens. It is amazing how things that you were, wouldn't, weren't able to handle very well before you will handle very differently than you would have handled it. And it turns out very differently than you would have thought it was going to if you'd handled it that way. And so David has been through this hundreds of times. Psalm 119 says that he would stay up nights reading the Bible, reading God's commands, reading the truths that were there. And he only had part of the Bible. He didn't even have Proverbs. So he talks about this full, incredible, broad wisdom of God, and his son was going to write Proverbs. <laughs> he wasn't around yet. And yet with just the Torah, just the first five books of the Bible, that he found so much wisdom in those books that he said it blew his mind. In fact, the line that says, my heart 
my heart instructs me. So Hebrew is kind of funny. It doesn't, the word heart really means your mind and your emotions and your will kind of all together. But like your deep emotional places, it uses words like livers, kidneys, and stuff like that. Right? And so the, the line literally says, at night my kidneys speak to me. Now, if you're a little older, you know <laughs> that about the last thing you want in the world is for your kidneys to speak to you. Right? If you're younger, that means kidney stones. Okay? But that's really not what this means. What this means is, is that there is a place in here in the guts somewhere, which is where all the um, the emotion is, the deep feeling, the visceral, the gut. You know, when you say, I feel it in my gut, right? It's it's in the kidneys, the liver, right? And And here's what he's saying. He's saying, the wisdom of God has worked its way all the way down there. So that even the visceral reactions of my gut The most animalistic, nonsensical, sin-driving part of me has become increasingly informed by the wisdom of God, and it's become increasingly under His control, so that when I'm laying awake at night, my guts are speaking God's wisdom to me. It's unbelievable, right? And He says the result of it is that He will never be shaken, Right? The, the picture in, in, the, in the, like the, the concept here is something attached to something else and you're like trying to shake it off and it just won't shake off. You know, you're, you're just, you think the thing's gonna, and it, it won't come off. It's just too well attached. And you see, your life is gonna get shaken. Right? My life has gotten shaken a few times and there's a little bit of shaking every day. And the question is not, is your life gonna get shaken? The, the question is, are you gonna get shaken out? And what David is saying is he's saying he has experienced God's promise of wisdom, believing it, seeking it out, and learning that wisdom and walking in it in such a way that now he's experienced that he's never going to be shaken. And that, after those three, is when he says, so so because of that, my heart is happy and my glory rejoices. Right? Right? And then he does the fourth one, which is the one he hasn't experienced yet. He says, he says, yes, I as a person, morally, spiritually, knowing who I am and how I'm going to go through this world, I'm to the point now where I've experienced it socially, I've experienced in terms of what I'm going to have or not have, I've experienced in terms of the internal sense of who I am and God's wisdom. I know at this point in my life, I know I'm not going to be shaken. And I know God has already preserved me, and I turn to him only to preserve me. He says, but I also know, he says, I also know, sorry, that my flesh will dwell in security. Now, this is a guy, listen, a lot of people have commented on this verse and said that this isn't about Jesus, and this isn't even about eternal life. That this is just about the fact that David isn't being killed at this moment, and he doesn't expect to be killed anytime soon. And I just think that this is, that is a horrifically bad way to read this psalm. Because there are many psalms where, where David actually says, somebody's trying to kill me right now, God, please preserve me. That's not what's happening in this psalm. This psalm isn't about that. This psalm is about David's overflowing happiness that is so great that his joy is happy. 
And he's trying to explain to us and help us enter into that feeling and that sense and that experience that you and I can actually be so satisfied in God and what he's like and what he does and who he is that our happiness can be happy. And he says, and he gives, he's given us three examples. He says, and the fourth example is this. Not only will I as a person not be shaken, but my flesh and my being will dwell secure. In one of these battles, they might kill me. I might get a disease anytime, but here's what I'm here to tell you. Not only will my character not be shaken, but at some point my body's going to die, and it is going to dwell in the earth. <laughs> and it is going to dwell in the earth, dead as nails, completely secure. And my soul, right, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew word for soul, they just say me in, in the next verse, but he says, my nephesh, my soul— you will not abandon me to the netherworld, to Sheol. Right? There was this belief that if there's any kind of part of us that existed, any kind of shade or ghost, people at this time, they didn't know. God hadn't spoken anything very specific about the afterlife. And so people didn't know very much, and so they just thought that if there was something left over, they'd had some occultic experiences, they'd heard stories about ghosts, they thought maybe there was something. And so they, there was this place, Sheol, that whatever is left of us kind of goes there. And what David says is, if I, if that exists and I go there, I won't be left there. You won't abandon me there to that place. He says, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now, it's possible that both of those lines he's referring to himself. The word that he uses for holy one or faithful one is only used twice in that form in the whole Bible, and the other one, it's almost impossible to know what it's referring to. It might refer to God. It might refer to the tribe of Levi. It's very difficult to know. So this construction is very strange, and when word usage is strange, oftentimes that's when God does something that the original authors don't even understand, and certainly the original readers. This devout one, who is that? Right? And he says— you will not let your devout ones see decay. Now, what does that refer to? And does it refer to eternal life? And the answer is it absolutely returns to eternal life because though, though the expression in the poem works its way down, if you want to know the logic, work your way up. Right? He says, there is joy in plenty before your face, often translated in your presence. But the picture is in front of the face of God, and there are pleasures at your side forevermore. So he's using the most visceral, the most clear, the most immediate metaphoric interpretation he can, depiction of being literally in the presence of God and experiencing the abundance of joy and the everlasting nature of that joy. He's saying that is there. And remember, whatever he means here, he is saying this is fuel for joy. Remember that. That's what the whole psalm is about. Whatever he means here is fuel for incredible joy. He says, At your, in your face there's pleasure abundantly, and there are pleasures forevermore. And then he says, you will not—he says, you have made known to me the path of life. Meaning, in, 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 the, in the Hebrew Bible, they don't separate eternal life in this life. There is life and there is death. There's the way of life, there's the way of death. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all the way through the Bible. There's no, like, there's life and eternal life. We do that, because we hope they're split up somehow. But they're not in the Bible. There is the way of life, and there is the way of death. And he says, you have shown me the way of life, and he means the way of life all the way through. 
He showed him the way of life to know who he is all through verse 7. He says, and you've shown me the way to life, even though my body's going to die and my soul may go to Sheol, you have shown me the way because you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now, both of the first sermons of Peter and Paul quote this verse. The two public sermons of the two foundations of the Christian church quote this line in their first public sermon. And both of them say, David knew full well he was going to die and he was going to rot. In fact, he said his body would dwell secure, not unpungent. But he said that God's Holy One would not see decay. Now, now you might be like, but Nick, isn't that a stretch? Isn't that a Christian stretch of Jewish, Jewish scriptures? Maybe, but remember, the great enthronement psalm of God's King is Psalm 2. Which both Peter and Paul also quote. Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed are all who take refuge in you. Psalm 16 starts with, Preserve me, O God. Get it? My body will dwell secure. Preserve me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, you may not want to see them as connected, but David saw them as connected. He saw them as very connected. He saw that God's enthroned Son, His Holy One, who God would always vindicate, would not see decay, would not see destruction, would not see loss, and anyone who took refuge in Him would become heir to everything that God had given His Holy Son that He had enthroned as God and King. And so he knew that God had shown him the path of life because he wouldn't let His Holy One see decay. Now, the question is, is, is that all it means, right? right? If, if God would not let his holy Christ, his anointed one, see decay, right? Anointed one is what Jesus, was what Christ means, and it's what the king in Psalm 2 is called, right? Raging against the Lord's anointed one. It means that Christ would rise from the dead, whoever the Christ would be, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son, and therefore is Lord and King. David also recognizes it means he would rise from the dead, Right? It also, he also believes that that means that everyone would rise from the dead. But there's a last corollary that isn't always obvious, but that both Peter and Paul say is a direct implication of the resurrection of the Son. And he says that sins, forgiveness of sins would be offered to everybody. Right? I'm going to actually preach on Acts 13 this passage next year. So if you want to hear more on that, come back. Um, but at the end of Paul's sermon, this is, this is his conclusion. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you see how the dynamic a thousand years later is still exactly the same? God has only one spiritual dynamic with human beings. Promise Faith, faithfulness, provision. Promise, faith, faithfulness, provision. Promise is the Christ came to forgive sins. He's not just Lord, he's Savior. And so anybody who believes in him can be forgiven of everything you couldn't be forgiven of under the law of Moses and anything you can't be forgiven of trying to earn your own salvation, trying to be a good person. 
And when God wipes out your guilty past and leads you to all the things um, Dave experienced in Psalm 16, you'll realize that you are due for a very fulfilling present, not a boring one. And no matter how crazy or insecure the world gets, you are also walking into a secure future. Because even the grave and Sheol are places where you can only ever be secure. Because he didn't let his Holy One see decay. And so both Peter and Paul said that if you believe that, that is the promise. If you believe it, then believe it. And the first step of faithfulness, he said, is to take on Jesus' name in the ritual of baptism. It's very simple. It's a super easy step. Like you basically, you basically get wet for Jesus, right? Which is a really good test of how committed you are, right? Um, and so th this is how the church for 2,000 years has often ended their celebration of Easter together, is with baptisms. And so that's how we're going to end our service today. So I'm going to pray, and then I think the band is going to come up, and we're going to get ready to do that. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us to be people who believe that on the basis of a 3,000-year-old promise in a 2,000-year-old event, that we would recognize that it was the greatest miracle in the history of the world, greater than the parting of a sea and a whole race of people walking out of slavery, which was amazing that this was greater, that this was the offer for all humanity to walk out of the compulsion and coercion of sin and idols and slavery and death. Help us to believe. Help us to take steps of belief that are faithful and show us how you provide, how you work, how you act, so that when we step out in trusting you, the result isn't just experience, but joy. We pray, God, please help us to feel better as we learn to be better at feeling. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.